Welcome to Cognation. This is your host, Rolf Nelson. And me, Joe Hardy. Welcome to the show. On this week's episode, we're going to be talking about pain, and we have a special guest, uh, Dr. Michael Trujillo. Mike is a PhD neuroscientist who has got his degree at UC Riverside. He is currently the Vice President for Clinical Affairs and Data Science at Karuna Labs. And they're working on a variety of topics, but I think the, the thing we're going to be focusing on today is pain. So uh, we can talk a little bit about that. Mike, do you want to say a little bit about uh, yourself and, and what you're doing these days? Sure. Um, so uh, happy to be on with you, uh, Joe and Rolf. Uh, yeah, so uh, as Joe mentioned, I'm the Vice President for Clinical Affairs at Karuna Labs. Uh, at, at Karuna, we create um, virtual reality tools to treat chronic pain. And uh, the, way th the way that we do that is we use a concept known as virtual embodiment uh, combined with functional rehabilitation exercises to treat chronic pain. <clears throat> um, I got into this, uh, this, this type of work after... Um, uh, several years after my PhD, uh, working with uh, in vitro diagnostics, uh, such as uh, in vitro electrophysiology on stem cell derived cells in safety pharmacology and toxicology. And I was really interested in the way that pain itself is very, <clears throat> very, very complicated and uh, is a very interesting thing to study right now because there is a a lot of things that can be done with respect to the way that pain is modulated. I would mention also that that Mike and I know each other from uh, from way back now. Uh, we worked together at Posit Science uh, over ten years ago now, and almost 20. oh wow, yeah, so <laughs> a lot more than ten. Well, that's giving away a little too much information, but yeah, so we we've been able to keep in touch, uh, and so I'm super glad to have him on the show today. And I think uh, I think we've got a really good topic. Yeah, great. So I am really looking forward to this. And Mike, this is the first time I'm meeting you. So pleasure to talk with you on this show. And I think this is a great, interesting topic to get into. Um, so the paper that we're using as a sort of guide for this episode is one that came out fairly recently in uh, June of this year, and it is called Boundary Effects of Expectation in Human Pain Perception. And it's by E.J. Hurd and his colleagues uh, at uh, in the United Kingdom at Manchester. And uh, just a, a basic overview of this paper, the basic idea is that expectations can temper the way that we experience pain. Um, so maybe let's, uh, let's just dive into this paper. So um, Mike and Joe, feel free to jump in. So what did you think about this? Maybe we can go over some of the. Yeah, so you know, to to take kind of a you know the thirty two thousand foot view, um, so th this is one of those things within pain research that uh, people have thought existed for a long time that you can modulate your experience to pain, or you can modulate the perception of how dis discomforting pain is to you. And I thought this paper was pretty interesting because they had a, a pretty straightforward and simple way to test whether you can modulate your perception to the intensity of pain. Yeah, that's, I mean, it, it seems like it's the kind of thing that makes sense. So for example, if you're expecting something to be very painful and then you, you know, something happens, you're going to maybe feel like that's more painful than if you were expecting it to just be not very painful at all. And that's the general idea. So it's sort of like a placebo effect or a nocebo effect uh, if, if it's right. if it's more painful than, than you're expecting. And there's And I will yeah, make the, yeah. I will make the claim that this is significantly worse in young children because <laughs> I it was a couple of weeks ago I took my kid to the emergency room because he had a cut on his chin and he needed stitches. And when, as it turned out, that actually getting the stitches was not that bad, and he wasn't even it wasn't even that bad when he was getting it. But the anticipation for it was just killing him. Especially, he didn't know what he was getting. He thought he was, he thought this was it. This was the end of it, and he was just screaming bloody murder. And this, to me, is is sort of at the 
<laughs> at the one end of how expectations can affect can uh, affect how, how, how old your kid your kid Rolf? he is eight years old right now oh okay i've, I've got an eight-year-old too oh okay so um, maybe yeah, it's something so. that you've seen before too yeah. oh yeah. yeah jackson's about to turn eight yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i you know i heard, I heard this uh real interesting uh kind of i guess wisdom once is that uh children learn to deal with pain and adversity based on how their parents react when they fall down so i try to ignore them when they get hurt <laughs> huh. yeah i mean that that's yeah that's definitely part of it there there is some sense to that there is some intuitive sense to that as a parent i think but it's yeah. funny how i mean the, the pain thing you know is is interesting from the perspective of just that there are psychological effects. You know, there's there are things that you yes. can do to modulate pain. We all kind of know that. And I think the, the fun thing about this particular work is that they really do some careful exploration of the space of how much and under one conditions you can modulate pain. Uh, the paper, as we will get into, is not perfect, but it's some pretty, there's some pretty cool stuff in here and it's interesting. So, you know, pain perception itself is a, is a super interesting topic for me because there, there's a, a very wide spectrum for pain tolerance itself. You know, so, some people can deal with pain very well. Uh, other people, you know, just the, the slightest bit of pain is, is very discomforting to them and, uh, and, and it hurts, you know, so, um, one of the ways I like to think about it is like kind of extremes. Um, so if you take fighters, for example, you know, like a boxer, um, MMA boxer, MMA fighter, even, you know, wrestlers or, or football players, you know, who are someone who just takes a ton things. of punishment. Exactly. So, you know, they, they go into these things knowing that, Hey, you know, I might break my hand in the middle of a fight and you, you see these, these fighters who, you know, will break their hand in let's say the first round of a boxing match and then continue 11 more rounds and what should be under excruciating pain. You know, if, if I broke mm -hmm. my hand at work, I'm not finishing the day. <laughs> I'm <away>. going home. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm going home. But you know, for, for some reason there's these people, you know, like, like, like fighters at a high level that can, can endure that pain long enough to get through another, another 30 minutes of a fight. Now, um, so there's, a, go ahead. Now someone like that, who has a really high tolerance for pain, is that, do you, this is something I don't know so much about. So is this on a continuum with people who experience no pain? So people who actually have fibers cut so that they're, or, or that have a congenital um, inability to feel pain? So the inability to feel pain is, is not, it would not be on the same continuum. Um, that, that's a, that's a disorder, you know, so. And that's clearly, and I know that that's clearly, um, I mean, it's a, it's a huge disability too, because if you, if you're not getting that feedback, um, you can really damage your, um, you can damage just about everything in your body because you curl up and you have no, you have nothing to tell you that it's a painful position that you're in. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You put yourself in danger, you know, and that's, you know, the, the way that pain's all, often framed is that it's your body's warning system that you are in danger, you know, so you, you'll take yourself back to introductory psychology when they're talking about reflexes and they, they always give the example of when you touch a hot stove, you withdraw from that hot stove before you even perceive that you are damaging your skin from touching the hot stove. Mm -hmm. So there's multiple mechanisms that work there, you know, you know, from, from, you know, subcortical, which would be, you know, largely out of our uh, conscious awareness, all the way down to the the level of the spinal cord, where if if a stimulus is so dangerous and so damaging to your well-being that hey, we're not even going to give the brain a second to figure out if this is good or bad. The spinal cord is just going to take care of it and withdraw from that stimulus. Um, but the as far as the the question about the continuum goes. You know, you can you can think of um, the continuum of you know these fighters or professional football players or the, you know you know somebody who can endure a, a large amount of pain and still push through that pain uh, to you know finish whatever task they're on. Uh, on the other other end of the continuum would actually probably be people who suffer from chronic pain. Not to say that people who suffer from chronic pain are somehow less tough or less able to deal with their pain. Their nervous system has adapted in such a way that it's made pain processing 
uh, kind of at the forefront of their existence. So they constantly attend towards this pain um, <clears throat> that may or may not be due to some kind of a warning or some kind of damage that they may incur. You know, so to, to give an example, there's a, a condition known as complex regional pain syndrome, um, which is very mysterious. Uh, there's not a lot known about the mechanisms of it, but uh, symptomatically it occurs when somebody has, let's say, an initial injury such as a sprained ankle that six months, one year, several years down the line, after the tissue from the sprained ankle has healed, they still perceive the ankle as painful. So huh. there's some maladaptive plasticity that's occurred where their either their pain tolerance has shifted to the point where something that should not be perceived as painful is perceived as painful, or there's some kind of maladaptive mechanism within the central nervous system up in, you know, in, in the brain itself that is creating this reaction to the previously damaged area in kind of a protective mechanism. And, you know, the, the way that, that uh, psychologists will refer to this or, or pain psychologists is hurt versus harm. Hmm. So the initial the initial reaction for pain is that I want to avoid something that's going to harm my body. But it continues for people in chronic pain because they now perceive it as every time it hurts, I need to protect that so I don't harm it. Uh, but that's not necessarily the case. That's a super interesting mm -hmm. distinction there between hurt and harm. I think it, you know, I was thinking about that from the perspective as you were talking about pain tolerance, because in some sense it's pain tolerance is a question because if I'm experiencing something, you know, that's a, like say a six on a scale of zero to 10, like let's say it's a shock, for example, like an electrical shock, like we're going to talk about in this in this paper. The same level of voltage I might experience as a six, you might experience as an eight. You have you're having more pain than I'm having, or reporting more pain than I'm right. reporting. But is that because I have a higher tolerance for pain, or is it actually just that I'm ex I experience less pain for the same amount of harm, or experience pain? Or even experience, experience pain, differently. pain differently. Yeah. So it's 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 difficult to talk about that. I feel like the language kind of fails us a little bit when we start to talk about pain as such, because it is a psych, you know, it is a a conscious experience. It's a subjective conscious experience. It's hard for us to to compare. It's very, very subjective and also very categorical. So, you know, there's there's also situations. So, you know, there's one way to think about it is to look at the extreme, somebody who can tolerate pain versus somebody who has a low tolerance for pain. Uh, but another way to, to think about it is within an individual, they can they can handle pain in differently depending on the context they're in. You know, so to, to give an example, I, you know, from what my wife tells me, childbirth is very painful. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I, I can only assume that it is. Um, but that, that most women can tolerate it. Uh, because it's a it's it's this context where you understand that there's going to be some pain um, that you know presumably is followed up by this joyous moment of having a child, and you know evolutionary you can think of it that there's 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 built-in mechanisms that help women deal with that type of pain in a way that is not not going to damage them long term because you know it's obviously very painful, but that can continue the the evolutionary line so that you know they can have children. Yeah, that's a inter very interesting example. So in maybe a simplistic way that I think about this, and maybe you have a better conception of it, is I think about when you're getting the pain signal from the actual, you know, there's the actual thing in the world that transduces a pain signal that goes up your spinal cord into your brain. And I kind of, I, I think about part of the rest of the pain system as being um, an interpretation of what that means, that, you know, you, you do have something physical, but it can be highly modulated by all kinds of context. If meditation can help pain or a lot of treatments that aren't directly uh, addressing, you know, the initial shot of pain up through the nervous system, all of that stuff is trying to modulate it at a higher level. And and as you mentioned, pain is a subjective phenomenon. It's, in, it's entirely a personal experience. So we can't know exactly what pain another person is feeling. 
I wonder if this is a framework that seems helpful, or maybe you could update it with uh, better terminology. Well, you know, there, there, there's a word that that yeah that you touched on there that throughout the pain, pain research literature, this will always come up. That's the word perception, right? Um, so I know Joe is a you know has a background in perceptual psychophysics. Rolf, you you studied with Joe, so you may have. Yeah, that's my and that's a lot of my area too. Is in perceptual psychophysics. Yeah. So if you think, and you know, within the visual system, for example, um, let's say you, you have these these neurons, these circuits within, let's say, the primary visual cortex that are very very good at responding to angles or straight lines, right? Um, so your brain, you know, when when the the signal comes in from your eyes, it sends a signal back, and there's this neuron that its job is to say, "I saw a straight line." When you see an object, you're not thinking about, wow, is this sliding straight, slightly, slightly angled at 25 degrees, slightly mm-hmm. angled at, at, you know, negative 25 degrees. So, you, you, you know, you're not thinking that, but you have this perception of something you saw, right? Mm-hmm. So, so pain is similar in that there is a signal coming in that there may be damage to your, your body or your, your, your organism. Uh, but the perception of it is, is kind of higher order similar to how you have this visual perception where you have these, these primary sensory modalities that are processing a signal, but the actual interpretation of that signal is it happens at a, at a higher level within the, the organization of the brain. And because it happens at this higher level, there's a lot of things that can come into play with the way that you actually do perceive that painful, painful stimuli. And it's, it's very com- complex, very complicated. And, you know, for the most part, um, the exact mechanisms by which pain perception occur within the higher centers within the brain is not very well understood. You know, there's, there's a lot of things like uh, fMRI studies that say, well, you know, there, there are certain areas within the brain that are, are active when you're experiencing pain. Um, so one of those, of course, is, as I'm sure you could guess, the amygdala, right? Because mm-hmm. the amygdala is very, very involved in threat detection, as well as emotional response to things. Uh, another one that's actually pretty interesting is the anterior cingulate cortex, uh, which is involved in a lot of attentional processing. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of an area that, that is active when you're choosing to pay attention to one thing versus another. Um, and also, you know, with these fMRI studies, they say, oh, the, the hippocampus is also active, uh, you know, but sh- show me, show me when the hippocampus isn't active. Right, right. <laughs> you yeah. know, so. yeah. that's not telling you a lot. Right. But I mean, the, and the, even the anterior cingulate now is like in all of these fMRI studies, mm-hmm. it feels like that's always one that comes up. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's, there's animal models of, of chronic pain, you know, rodent models uh, that show a lot of interesting changes within all these circuits. Um, uh, so, um, you know, Professor Zhao up at University of Toronto sh- has shown uh, a long-term plasticity within the anterior cingulate cortex in a, in a rodent model of chronic pain. Um, but, you know, as, as you both know, the, the rodent models can tell us a lot, but it's very hard to ask a, a, a mouse or a rat to subjectively That's rate their right. pain. If, if you're translating from a mouse or a rat model you know, if you're if you're developing a drug or or something like that, that may have a particular effect on a mouse behavior or certain circuitry. You don't know how analogous that is to human behavior or human circuitry. So it's since again, since pain is this intense subjective feeling, it's it's difficult to know how uh, pain for a mouse translates into pain for a human and what aspect of pain you might be addressing. That's right. Maybe it makes sense to jump into talking about how the how we do sometimes measure pain perception, maybe in the context of uh, of the paper, and how the the technique that they use for um, for rating pain. While while in the paper it's you know it's a scientific report, so it comes the methods come last. I think it's actually probably a great place to start to talk about how people actually are, are experiencing pain and, and, and rating their pain in this paper? So in this paper, they, they use a very, very standard uh, method of rating pain, which is a, a numerical scale. It's usually typically on a scale of one to 10, you know, rate how intense the pain you're perceiving is. Uh, 
typically people will use that or something that's called a visual analog scale uh, where you have a, a 10 centimeter line and you have to kind of put an X on that line where you, you have how you perceive the intensity of your pain. But with these types of scales, it's kind of difficult to uh, kind of tease out the meaningfulness of their rating. So if it's a scale of one to 10, 10 is supposed to represent pain that's absolutely unbearable, which is difficult, you know, difficult to measure within a laboratory setting. So with this, with this paper, what they did is they kind of primed the participants to rate the pain at a level that was scientifically, at least as, as part of the, the study goes itself, attainable. So they kind of normalize them to rate a certain intensity of stimulation to the, to the back of their hand as a certain number. And if they, they couldn't do that initially, they had to renormalize them until they said, this, this is the intensity that should be given an eight, for example. Right. They, in this case, they, they were zapping them with electricity, right? Right. There was some sort of an electro that they had on the, they put on their back of their hand. Yeah. And they were increasing the voltage and giving them more and more juice yeah, so, until they, yeah. they reached a level where it was, you know, just tolerable. I think that was the way they described yes. the, the highest level. There was like just tolerable. Yeah. So they, they gave, they gave the co- constant current stimulation. And I, I feel the need to give a shout out to my friends at Digitimer because I'm very, I, I know the guys who produce the, uh, the actual equipment that they use. Ah. So give a shout out to Gareth Thompson at Digitimer. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a constant current stimulation. Reducing pain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, right they didn't d- design it with that in mind, but it's very <laughs> useful for giving any stimulation. I have to say, I notice here that they receive, okay, so this is in, this is in Britain. So they're receiving pounds. They get 15 pounds of compensation. I don't know if I would volunteer for an experiment, 15 pounds for that level of pain. I think it it depends on what the exchange rate is. <laughs> Good point. Right. Oh, yeah, no, the, pound for, the, yeah. the pound for pain ratio is, is a little bit off. Oh, yeah. yeah. Maybe, you know, they're, they're also all like undergrads. So I wonder if they're, you know, getting course credits for it as well, maybe, or something like that. I guess so. But that seems like, I don't know, seems low. I feel like you should have to pay, pay yeah, you should have to pay pain to people, pain subjects a little extra. Absolutely. I mean, but then, then of course, you get into the whole question of, is the amount of money so much that it's causing people to, you know, take on this, you know, this experiment when they maybe don't want to or don't feel comfortable? Yes, that's probably true. Coercion is the word yeah. I was looking yeah. for. Yeah. So you, you, you don't want to be coercive in the amount of money that you give out. That's actually one of the things they always make you talk about when you, you know, do your human subjects. I, I just want to know the I want to know the rate at which people decided it was worth it to go through the experiment or how much resentment they got afterwards. Yeah, they they, <laughs> they don't they don't right. yeah they don't um they don't report how many people dropped out of the experiment. Right. No, they didn't talk about that at all. <laughs> yeah. But you know But I mean there's there's cognitive dissonance at work here too. Yeah. And we're that, that's a yeah, whole right, other episode. Right. But yeah. yeah. You know so uh so with my work at Karuna what's what's actually been pretty interesting to me is that uh, there's people that contact contact us on a, almost a daily basis who've been suffering from chronic pain for a long time, like, you know, sometimes years, who say, I'm willing to try anything and pay whatever it takes uh, to receive some kind of relief. What a horrible um, life that must be. For some people it is, yeah. Um, and so one of the one of the approaches that's been most successful in the the treatment for chronic pain is something something's called a functional restoration program. Um, and the functional restoration programs approach chronic pain holistically. So they're not, not approaching it like a, a typical, like you're a physician would, where they're saying, okay, well, if you have pain, let's give you some, some pain medicine, some medicine to help you with coping with the pain, um, which can have a temporary relief. You know, so the common thing is opioids. And of course we're in the middle of the opioid crisis now because mm-hmm. It's been overprescribed for things like chronic pain. Opioids were never really designed Mm -hmm. to be used long term. It's more of a temporary solution to something like recovering from a surgery where you know that you're going to have some pain that should subside within a given period of time. But, you you know, to to bring up the point about uh, paying subjects, sometimes the patients will contact us at Karuna and say, can I pay to be a part of a, a, 
you know, clinical trial. Hmm. Uh, but you know, that's, that's unethical because then if you, if you make paying, uh, part of the exclusion criteria of being part of a clinical trial, you're potentially excluding, uh, some percentage of the population who can't afford to pay. Right. No. So yeah, you can't, you can't have people pay to participate. Right. Yeah. But that, that's it. You know, the, uh, the technique is interesting. So they, they're basically shocking the person's back of their hand and then they rate on a scale of, is it zero to 10 or one to 10, one to 10 pain scale, uh, you know, how painful it is. But they, 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 they prime them first. So they, they let them know this is what you can expect the intensity to be. Right. So they're kind of giving them a range of expectation. Right. And then in the training, they actually do even more than that, right? They actually go through and have them rate the different levels and intensities, and they have to get them quote unquote correct. Right. So they have to map their two, you know, pain rating to the two on the dial at 75% correct to participate in the study. Right. So there's a decent amount of training at the beginning part to like kind of map it out. So what my one thought I had there was how much of this is you're just learning to represent the sensation as a as a number, yeah. There, versus like the, the actually feeling that much, quote unquote that much pain. Well, it's pain pain is you know as we as we just discussed pain is subjective. So you know whatever we tell you, you it should be you know as, as, let's say it's an experimenter you know, talking to a participant, whatever we tell you it should be is what it should be because it is subjective and contextual. And it is, it is a very, it's a very acute stimulation paradigm in the sense that it, the, the amount of time that you're actually receiving the stimulus is very short. Um, I think it's five, what did they say? Five milliseconds. So the, the way that it, they, that people sometimes measure this is you have to get it correct for the stimulation to stop. And they'd probably be be much more accurate if they had, especially on the high end, if they had to get it right for the pain to stop. The the point here for the the paper is, you know, of course, the ratings, but the real idea is to see if they can modulate the expectations of pain and to see if that affects how much pain people are reporting, and then to go even one step further to see if there's a limit to how much you can do there, how much uh, of the say placebo effect you can create. The hypothesis that they had was that there would be a, a, a tipping point where let's say if you are told that there's going to be a six, the, the pain on this trial is going to be a six. You're going to feel that eight, maybe as closer to a seven. Right because you had that expectation of a six going into it. And that's coloring your experience or perception of the pain. But if you're told that it's going to be a two and you get a 10, maybe the expectation effect is not going to be so direct because the discrepancy, the prediction error is so large that it doesn't make sense to modulate the pain perception based on that, yeah. that expectation anymore. Only with, right. yeah, it seems as though only their, their, their prediction and findings are that only when it's within a certain range of what the actual pain is, do you get the strongest effects of modulation, right? Yeah. That's right. So, you know, they, they term this a boundary effect, um, which it, it definitely is, but it's, it's similar to, you know, in, in other perceptual psychophysics domains, kind of like an envelope effect, where there's a certain threshold that you have to interpret whether two signals are actually different from each other. Um, and that threshold, as things are more similar, it becomes more difficult to tell them apart. So in one way, you can interpret these results as similar to maybe their pain thresholds, where if something is, is close to what they're expecting, it's close enough to whether to where they cannot tell whether their expectations expectations differ from what they the stimulus they've received. But if it's so large, like if you tell me it's a two and it's a ten, I know you're tricking me there. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right. I know that's not right. So 
they'd probably rate it much higher. This seems another, I, I had a similar way of thinking about it. I was thinking about it in, so in vision, you know, if we want to test out, say, the relative strength of vision versus audition, um, you know, sometimes vision dominates and maybe you get something like ventriloquism because you see the mouth moving and that overtakes your sense of hearing, right? Or like the McGurk effect. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So you have two different sources of information. You have you have vision and audition. And in the pain experiment here, you have two sources of information. You have the expectation that's given to you and you have the actual zap that you get. And you have to sort of right. decide which of those is more reliable. Uh, and if they're close together, you might have some confusion about them. But again, if it's far apart, if it's a two versus a ten, then you'd be, you'd be, you wouldn't really be fooled by the ten, by the prediction of a ten. You'd you'd have a strong sense of what that signal is. Yeah, and it you know the other kind of interesting thing too about their model is that you have kind of this double asymptote. You know, so they, they use this the, uh, a polynomial fit. And the reason they're using a polynomial fit is because they expect a double asymptote. They, they expect that if if the, the stimulus is orders of magnitude larger on the expectation, then you expect that there it will asymptote to this point where there'll be an optimal level or what they call the tipping point where you will be able to change your perception to that pain stimulus based on what you expect. But they also see it negatively, which is also interesting because with these types of scales, they're, they're, they should be nonlinear, <laughs> really, because you can imagine if you have a pain, if you're experiencing pain so intense that you rate it an eight out of 10, you know, and, and you know, keep in mind that the 10 is absolutely that's, unbearable. That's the limit, yeah. That's the limit. And then you change it by two points, that change from an eight to six is probably very, very significant. But it's a very low percentage. Mm -hmm. But you're changing it at this this, you know, at the high end where it's almost unbearable. But then if you're if you're at a four, it's like, oh, it's a little bit uncomfortable. But then you change it to a two from you know a little bit uncomfortable to mildly annoying. It's still a change of two, but the magnitude of change is probably much less significant than changing it from an eight to a six. Yeah. Yeah, that that was an interesting aspect to to the scale thing. The other thing about the scale the use of the scale and the cueing that they did in the study was that I kind of thought about it almost like a game. You know, you're kind of playing a game. They're saying this is going to be a 2 or this is going to be a, a 6 or this is going to be an 8. And then you're trying to get it quote unquote correct based on your experience of the stimulus. Mm -hmm. So you're, because you were trained to correctly, you know, indicate the, the, the stimulation level in the first part of the experiment. In the second part of the experiment, you're probably taking the same mentality into it. You're trying to get the correct answer. And you, you realize that some of the time, or maybe you don't realize that they didn't really get into whether people were aware of what was going on or not, but you may be aware that sometimes the number is right on and sometimes it's not. And to your point of the just noticeable difference, when it's close enough to where uh, it's within that you know couple of points, you're not sure if it's actually they're trying to trick you or if, if it's correct, uh, a veridical cue in that case. So that's where you, you know the you could get the same basic effect uh, across the board here and not have. In other words, it could be completely artifactual, in a way, based on you know the demand characteristics of the study. So people could re be reporting, not their subjective level of pain, but rather something a guess a guess that's meant to match it up to what the experimenters are what their measure is. And so your whole mentality goes towards getting this answer correct. So in some ways you're, you can imagine the person's mind is going in this direction of, Oh, I'm going to interpret this signal to try to basically guess or, or indicate which, you know, what level of stimulation I, I, I got on that particular trial. But there's an, there's an additional component 
in that pain is multimodal. Whereas something like auditory and visual is you can isolate your, your visual from the auditory. With pain, it's difficult to isolate something from, from pain or just simple, I, I felt something on my hand. I had a mm-hmm. somato sensation. I sensed something stimulating my skin. So it may not even necessarily be that they're rating pain on the lower levels rather than they're rating that they detected something. Hmm. And what's interesting is, in, so in, in figure two, where they actually show the, um, the numerical scale rating versus the stimulus intensity, at the lower levels, what you see is that if your cue is less than the stimulus, so if they're cueing you to less, you actually don't see a difference between the stimulus intensity and their rating score. So it's almost like a floor effect where the pain is not so severe that I, I think that cueing it is going to make it less severe. So if you if they say you're going to get a two and you get a three, you're still saying three. Right. Or you're still saying two or it's close enough or more like um, they say you're going to get a, a, a five, but then they gave you a three. Well, the, the three's not really that painful. So you're, 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 you're probably going to gauge it within that, that, that range of where you're three. But if they say they're going to give you a five and give you an eight, then you're much more likely to say that's more painful than you cued me. Yes. But on the other side, it's, it's, it makes it kind of strange that they see this effect where if the stimulus is less painful than they're cued, it's strange that they can detect that, that difference at all. Yeah. So there's, there are, you know, the first order effects of the study are interesting in themselves. And I think we can think about whether or not we believe in those. And then there's these higher order effects. When I say the higher order effects, what I mean is the bat what's so-called boundary effects. In other words, is there a, a point, a tipping point at which the difference in perception of the pain is not as great uh, as you would expect due to cueing because there's just such a discrepancy. Right. That's like the higher order effects, and I think there even their effect size with for that was pretty small, and there's some indication that that there was some, something in that direction. But you know, the first order effects are themselves interesting, which is just that if you cue a lower value, generally speaking, you experience, you, in, you are reporting subjectively less pain. And if you cue a higher value, you're generally speaking, you know, reporting more pain. Right. But you know, that, that even there, I mean, again, to the, to the idea of, it's it's difficult to separate out is that the fact that they're actually experiencing less pain or they're taking that information into account when they're trying to correctly identify the stimulation level well that's a hard one because at some point you almost with a subjective measure like this you almost have to just um i mean you you can ask them if if they, you know, they feel like they're trying to please the experimenter, if they're engaging in some sort of deception, but you almost have to take their word for it on a subjective measure, because there's not, you just don't have anything else. Yeah, I mean, you could do a thing where you modulate the pro- the probability of a veridical cue versus a non-veridical cue. Right. So, so the the trustworthiness of the of the cues. Correct. Correct. So what you should see is that if they are, uh, it's yeah, unfortunately that it, it won't pull apart so so perfectly, because you could imagine you could imagine that either way, the more reliable the cue is, the more they're going to weight that. It, it you know it, it even goes uh, a step further or you know uh, inverse to that. Um, there's there's people. People themselves, human beings, or you know, ind- there's individual variation across people on how reliable they are at rating pain. So in in pain research, uh, there's two types of patients that you don't really want in your study. Uh, the one patient is every time you ask them to rate their pain, they give you the same answer. So it's always six, six, mm-hmm. six, six. 
So in the research, those, those patients are very hard to move clinically. It's very hard to change their interpretation of their pain intensity. The other one that you don't want is one that's all over the board, that they're like two, eight, you know, two one day, eight one another day, uh, four another day, 10 another day. Those patients who are highly variable are also very hard to move. What you want is a, you know, is in at least pain research is the type of patient who is representative of kind of the, the population and that they kind of have an understanding of where their pain is. So, you know, in addition to making it predictable or non-predictable of the, the stimulus intensity, there's also that individual variation where some, some people, some of these participants were probably pretty variable in, in their responses to, let's say, a two or, or a six. Maybe we can take a little break here and get back at some of this stuff. Sounds good. Quick plug, if you like the show, please share with a friend, rate us on iTunes, and like us on Facebook. You can also get more details about our episodes at cognation.fireside.fm. All right, we're back. So just wrapping up discussion on this paper, I don't know if there's anything else either of you wanted to uh, put in about this, but I think very nifty result and uh, a nice demonstration of the kinds of effects you can have from context on pain, and you can get a, a nice good grip on, on how some of this stuff works. So uh, anything else either of you wanted to add to this? I would just mention that you know it's very interesting that they see you know, these clear indications of modulation of pain perception with cues. Uh, I don't necessarily buy the higher order sort of effects uh, that they are purporting to see in this study. I think the effect sizes are kind of small. They're doing a lot of math. They're doing a lot of analyses for the number of subjects that they have, 30 in each of two data sets. So I think they may be overstepping uh, the data here with their analysis, which is yeah, normal, uh, especially because the two data sets don't replicate each other perfectly. Another, you know, general thing. So the, the, the first order effect that there is this, you know, if you have a, a lower Q, you're going to report less pain. Or if you have a higher Q, you're going to report more pain. That seems to be pretty solid and pretty robust. And the techniques that they're using are interesting uh, and relatively convincing. But I don't I don't really necessarily buy the higher order stuff. Yeah, I yeah, I, I would second that. Um, you know, this is this is one of those things in in pain research that is kind of been uh, agreed upon for a long time that you know pain is very subjective, very contextual, and can be modulated. Uh, but they had a really nice way of of testing that and showing that empirically. Um, so you know, I I like those first order results. Awesome. Okay. Um, let's move on, and uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about uh, pain treatment in general. And Mike, you could say something about your experiences in uh, the pain treatment world, and then uh, something about the approach that you have right now in virtual reality. Sure. So, you know, with with chronic pain, um, it, it's a little bit different than either. You know, what in in the pain research we we'd refer to a, a study like this as. Uh, experimentally induced pain, where they're actually, you know, inducing a predictable, predictable stimulus that they can measure a pain response from, uh, versus acute pain, which is, you know, pain. Oh, oh I, I sprained my ankle. Uh, there should be some pain there, and the pain is kind of thought of as the body's warning system that, hey, let's not run on this right now. We need the tissue to heal, and so the 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 function of the pain is to to protect the body. So that it has sufficient time to heal, so that you know we'll recover normally, and you won't have any additional injury in in addition to the uh, initial insult. Uh, so where I'm working right now is is in the realm of chronic pain, uh, pain that that lasts longer than three to six months, um, which is a it's a really big problem in that uh, chronic pain by definition is treatment resistant. Uh, so. You have chronic pain because the, the methods that are used to treat things like acute pain are generally not, not good enough or don't, don't have long-lasting 
benefits to where the pain subsides over time. So they have it for a long time. And the, the interesting, both the interesting thing scientifically, but also the unfortunate thing from, for individuals is there's a lot of maladaptive neuroplasticity that occurs in people with chronic pain. So, you know, you can imagine from your, from your guys's work in, in perceptual psyche physics, the things that a person attends to or devotes attentional resources to typically gets a priority in the processing of, of what's going on and, you know, around them in their world. So with, when people with chronic pain, what they have is this constant attending towards their pain. And that, that does two things. Number one, it actually decreases their, their, their pain threshold. So then they, they will perceive things that shouldn't be perceived as painful as painful. Uh, so if somebody has, for example, complex regional pain syndrome of their, of their right hand, they may perceive something as light as just um, a hand brushing their hand as painful. Whereas, you know, a normal, if, you, if you're, you know, not to say they're, not, they're abnormal, but uh, people who are not suffering from chronic pain, if you brush across a hand, they perceive that, oh, something brushed across my hand. Um, so it, it shifts pain thresholds, but also they, they have an increased anticipation for painful events. Um, so at, at Karuna, what we work with a lot is movement, movement induced pain. So for example, if somebody has chronic shoulder pain, they begin to associate, if I move, then I will experience pain. That movement equals pain. And so what we do at, at, at Karuna is we, we provide um, virtual reality tools to help people overcome that pain. Um, virtual reality itself actually has some analgesic benefits or it's, it's pain relieving in that it can distract people temporarily from the, from whatever they're experiencing. Um, you know, so there's a lot of uh, research actually in, in burn victims, uh, who use this application called cool world. Uh, which has, you know, you, you put virtual reality goggles on and you experience something that's cool, like these, these glaciers with huh. uh, penguins, you know, playing around. And it's, it's a very cooling kind of experience. And people with, with burn pain report their pain as less severe when they are in that experience. And this is, this is known as distraction therapy. So at, at Karuna, we take it beyond ex, ex, distraction therapy in that while patients are, are temporarily uh, given some relief from their pain from being in the virtual reality setting, we provide functional rehabilitation exercises for them so that their body can move in a way that does not associate the movement with pain or they can, they can reach beyond their pain, pain-free range of motion so that we can gradually move them back into a spot where they don't have this, this fear of movement, this kinesiophobia where they're afraid to move because if they move, they'll experience pain. Now within the virtual reality setting, they're experiencing movement differently. So we can potentially break that association between movement and pain. And we take, we take a, a biopsychosocial approach, uh, which has been shown to be very effective within uh, chronic pain treatments, at least the most effective so far. Uh, still not you know, meeting the mark of completely effective. Uh, but people think, use things uh, like uh, a concept known as graded motor imagery, where you gradually recontextualize the way that people move so that you can break that association between movement and pain. And what we do is we bundle that into a virtual embodiment experience where, where patients in the VR setting will perceive the movements of a virtual avatar as their own. So we can do some, uni some unique manipulations such as mirroring, where if I have unilateral chronic shoulder pain, for example, I can perform exercise with my opposite side, which you know, presumably has, does not experience pain. But in the virtual world, I can show my painful side moving, even though my non-painful side is controlling the movement. I can perceive the painful side moving. And theoretically, what you can do is you can gradually break up that that um, association between pain and movement interesting so that's a i mean it's a little bit similar to uh, mirror boxes for phantom limbs yeah what we like to say is actually it's it's like mirror box on steroids right because you're going to be getting a lot better representation yeah yeah and we just so we just 
um, we just presented this poster a few few months ago at a big conference called Pain Week, which is kind of the the big conference for people who work in pain, where um, we actually wanted to test whether uh, mirroring or if you move your non-affected side but mirror it onto your affected side, you see some kind of difference. And what we were hoping to see is that if you move the painful side, but you mirror it so that you, in the virtual reality setting, it looks like your non-painful side is moving. We were hoping that we could increase the range of motion of the painful side. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't see that, you know, and there's, there, there could be a lot of reasons. Uh, these, are, these were chronic pain patients of longer than six months. Uh, some of them had chronic pain for years. So there could be some just physical limitation to, to how far they can move their painful side. But we saw something really interesting and really unexpected. When their non-painful side, which, which has complete and full range of motion, if it's mirrored onto their painful side, they reduce how much they move, even though their non-painful side has complete and full range of motion. So this, this suggests that the mirroring is, is really having an effect on how they perceive themselves moving. So, you know, what, what our hope is, is that we can use that to build these exercises that can break that association between pain and movement. That sounds very promising. That's really cool stuff. Yeah, that's, that is interesting. I mean, thinking about the, you know, the paper we were talking about before, are people doing things like trying to just work on your expectation for pain? So just trying to get people to expect to have less pain or or understand that they don't need to be afraid of having movement in certain directions, things like yes. that. Yeah. So one, one of the most actually effective treatments right now uh, for chronic pain is actually just what they call neuro, neuroscience pain education. So if they, if they educate patients on what, what pain processing is and you know, what it, it, its function actually is and they, the, in pain neuroscience education, they use that term hurt, not harm. So you, you, you get this kind of um, snowball effect with people with chronic pain is they think, oh, it, my shoulder hurts again. I must have injured it again. So if you, if you begin to understand that just because you, you're experiencing the pain doesn't mean you're necessarily harming the tissue or the joint or the muscle or whatever it is around there, that uh, patients can actually recover some of their function after just learning that this movement doesn't necessarily mean I've re-injured my shoulder, to give an example. How does this stuff fit in with an evolutionary um, description of what pain is for? Because, I mean, I guess you already mentioned this, you know, you sort of hinted at this, but obviously pain serves a, a valuable role in our lives because we need to know when we're hurt and we need to take care of ourselves when we're hurt. But in some of these cases with chronic pain, you're getting a clearly maladaptive response where there's no external danger, but you're still responding as though there is. Um, yeah. and, and one of the things we, that we see in this paper uh, that we're looking at now is that that expectation or the prediction of pain seems to have a lot to do with how that perception ev eventually arises. And I wonder if this might be part of the reason why we have this really contextual system for pain, that, it's so, that it is so flexible and it isn't just a, a straight response to you know, something that hits us or lights us on fire or something that we're, we're sensitive to other aspects of it. And one of those is, is you know, the evolutionary purpose of of uh, just about anything, if you know anything that's valuable, is to get you away from danger and and not get killed. So the predictive value um, seems to be built into a lot of these expectations about pain that seem to go so so badly wrong in people with chronic pain. Um, and I'm wondering if that's uh, in in line with the way that you might think about it too. Yeah, you know, so yeah, so with with this Darwinian approach of, of evolution is that, you know, animals want to survive, you know, and, you know, according to Darwin, live long enough to reproduce. Um, but, you know, with, with humans, uh, we have the ability to contextualize our environment. Um, other animals may have that ability too, but we can't ask them. Right. We can't ask, a, you know, a lab, lab mouse, well, what, what did you think about today's experiment? <laughs> hmm. Right. Uh, humans can contextualize it. 
Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of core morbid, comorbid features of, of, of people suffering from chronic pain, such as uh, the tendency for high anxiety. Um, there's uh, also um, people with chronic pain tend to have uh, uh, less quality sleep. Their, their quality of sleep is, is not as good. Um, so there's, there's these other comorbid fa factors. But aside from the evolutionary part of it, the way that I like to think of it about it is there's, there's really kind of two types of neuroplasticity, at least, you know, generally kind of, you can categorize them. Uh, one is, is the classic, what, what they, what, what is referred to as heavy plasticity, you know, the, the cells that fire together, wire, wire together. Mm -hmm. And that, that can explain kind of the strengthening at the synaptic level, the strengthening between two cells that share a synapse. Um, but there's another form of plasticity that's called homeostatic plasticity, which is really meant to kind of control the gain of neural circuits, you know, to make sure that the, the noise within the signal is, is dampened enough that you can extract the signal from the noise, you know. So, you know, there's, there's these rodent models in, in auditory neurophysiology where if you ex expose them to, let's say, white noise and make that white noise meaningful, like every time they hear this white noise, they'll have a foot shock. Uh, you can disrupt the organization with the auditory, within the auditory cortex to where it's not quite as organized. Therefore, the noise within the system is, is amplified. With homeostatic plasticity, you'd have uh, increases in the inhibitory connections within the circuit to dampen the noise. And so with, with chronic pain, if you think about it more instead of like an evolutionarily driven thing, but more of a, an artifact of our, our ability for our nervous system to remain plastic throughout life, that this kind of like this, this runaway um, maladaption in homeostatic plasticity because the pain signal is so crucial to the survival of the organism it's the thing that the organism should pay attention to, because if you don't, you know, you're going to burn your hand instead of withdrawing it from the hot pan. Um, so because the pain is constantly coming in, the, the thought is that the inhibitory part of that or the homeostatic plastic part of that is actually decreasing because the pain is signaling something that should be paid, paid attention to. Hmm, that's an extremely helpful way of thinking about it. I like that description. Yeah, that's that makes a lot of sense to me as well. Good. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of, uh, you know, next steps or going forward, what do you, you know, and maybe we can take it out with this, what do you think is really exciting in in this in this area of research? Like, what what are some what are one or two really exciting things that you're just pumped about uh, right now? So the, the 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 primary thing is actually taking advantage of this this so called placebo effect. Um, I say so called because the you know. The dogma of the placebo effect is that oh it's not really real, right? Um, so so there was there was a study uh, released a couple of years ago uh, where where patients were chronic migraine pain patients, and they were testing a, a new drug and they they when patients would come in with their migraine pain, they'd give them one of four cards. One card had the name of the drug, and had the drug on it. One card said placebo but had the drug on it. The third, the third card said the name of the drug, but had the placebo. And the fourth card said placebo on it and had the placebo. You got, can you guys guess what happened with the placebo? Still, still worked. Even when patients know they're receiving a placebo, they perceive that it has benefits for them. I love that. That's a great finding. Um, I wish yeah. I, I, I wish I could I would take any placebo effects that I can get. I try not to learn anything about medication so that I can get all the placebo effects I, I can. Yeah. So so but I think that you know the the placebo effect is going beyond just something of, of just tricking somebody. Uh, it's really showing the power of the mind 
to to have a top down influence on your on the sensory perception of pain. And with with virtual reality, or at least with with Karuna virtual embodiment training, what we're providing is a holistic approach. We're trying to reframe holistically the way that chronic pain patients cope with their pain. Uh, and we're doing that through functional rehabilitation exercises. Uh, but we also add things like guided meditation, uh, pain neuroscience education. And with our, our home unit that, will, that should be released uh, in the next couple months, uh, we're actually going to bundle pain coaching with it, where patients will interact with a, a pain coach remotely to help them overcome or help them with coping mechanisms and dealing with their pain and also staying with their plan of care. Well, that's very cool. I think that sounds like a, maybe a great place to stop uh, and wrap it up. But yeah, Mike, thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, I think I, I learned a lot and I yeah. enjoyed it. Mike, what a pleasure yeah. to have you on. This is a really uh, great conversation. Thanks for, thanks for stopping by. Sure. My pleasure.